Well, we're in this series called Famous Last Words, and what we've been trying to do with this is to get around the last words of Jesus. I mean, trying to really dial into the heart of Jesus. Now, listen, friends, we get it, like, uh, as a church, as a people, we, we try to get around the words of Jesus all the time. We try to get his words into our hearts, and, uh, but, but I just think there's something very important about the last words of Jesus, Last words are different. Last words carry weight to them, don't they? The, the, the last words of a dying man, they, they carry a measure of importance with them that all other words don't. And Jesus said some last words, and what I want to do is I want to really get into these last words. I want to learn from these last words. I want to grow from these last words. And so how, how many were here again last week for this series? And, and okay, if you were here, you, you might remember that we talked about this idea that the four books that begin the New Testament part of the Bible are called the Gospels, right? The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they record the story of the life of Jesus. They're the, they're the eyewitness accounts and the gathering of the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And, and what's so remarkable about it is sometimes in the telling of the story, they, they tell almost identical accounts or situations or stories that Jesus found himself in. And then there are other times that they tell completely different stories. But what's amazing is that all four tell of the final moments of Jesus' life here on earth. They each record it, but they each record it from a slightly different perspective. And so what I want to do over the next few moments is a little bit crazy. It's a little bit risky, but I think that we can handle this, right? Uh, And the reason I say it's risky is because um, everything I've learned about preaching and public communication and all that kind of a thing says that you should never begin a message or a public address by reading an, a long account of something, especially a, like I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read an entire chapter of the Bible to you, okay, in just a moment. We're going to start off that way. Now listen, listen, they always say that you should start off a public address of some kind with something funny or some engaging type of a story or an anecdote of some kind, and I get all that, um, but we're just going to throw out all those rules and we're going to just get a little bit crazy up in here this morning, all right? I'm just going to read an entire passage to you, and I'm going to beg you, and I'm going to trust you to follow along. Can you, can you follow this with me? Can you hang with me? Okay, let's dial this in together, because I think this will set us up to where we need to go. So let's, let's listen closely to the account given by a man named John, who is one of Jesus' closest friends and closest followers. And this is how he records it in John 19 the final day of the life of Jesus. Listen carefully. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they, and they arrayed him with a purple robe. And So you can just see right away John's just trying to remember all the accounts that happened, all the things that went on. He's just giving you a list of things that occurred on that day. And then it says, they came up to him saying, Hail, hail the king of the Jews. And they, and they struck him with their hands. And you can just see the picture he's painting that the people, as, they were, uh, as Jesus was um, in the trial or when he was being marched to the cross area where they were going to actually crucify him, the people had access to him and they would mock him and they would smack him and they would punch him. And, and you can see this picture that John is beginning to paint for us. And then, and then he remembers how Pilate, he eventually was brought to Pilate and, and he had this conversation with Pilate. And listen to what happens, verse four. Pilate went out again and said to the crowd, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt 
in him. And so Jesus came out. So Pilate brought, brings Jesus out wearing the crown of thorns and, and this purple robe. And, and Pilate uh, says to the crowd, behold, the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. Pilate's making it very clear. I don't know why you want to crucify this man. He isn't what you say he is. He's not traitorous. He's not leading people from God. Pilate says, I can even figure this out. And he says, I want nothing to do with his crucifixion. But the people demand, crucify, crucify him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die for he has made himself equal with the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. See, he knew something was going on with Jesus. He knew Jesus was different. Now all of a sudden he's putting two and two together. He is more than just a teacher of religion. He is more than just another rabbi. He's all of a sudden hearing, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought he was different, but now you're telling me that people are saying he's the son of God? And light bulbs are going on in Pilate's mind going, what have I got myself into? And then it says this, when Pilate heard the statement, he was more afraid than ever. He entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, what did Jesus give him? No answer. He was silent. Jesus said very little words his last day. And so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And so Jesus, he says something in response. This is really incredible. He says, you have no authority over me at all unless it is given to you from above. And so why did he respond? This is very interesting to me. I mean, he was silent the whole way through. But to this he responds. Why? Because Pilate was putting himself in the place of God. As if he ran the world. And Jesus wanted to go, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I just got to tell you something. You don't run anything. It is my Father in heaven who runs the show. And my life can, yeah, amen. So listen to this. Jesus says to him, you have no authority at all unless it is given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. Which is, blows me out my mind because Jesus knows what's right around the corner. Jesus has already gone through incredible agony. And this blows my mind because even in this moment, Jesus is ministering to Pilate. Isn't he? He's saying, I know what you're thinking. I know you think that you got guilt and I know you don't want to be involved with this, but this isn't your fault. This is somebody else has the greater sin here. This is somebody else's doing. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. He tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out to them and sat down on the judgment seat, this place called the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Um, Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? What was he doing? He was trying to, he was trying to free him. He was trying to make a way that Jesus could, could, could live, could get away because he didn't understand all the prophecies. He didn't understand that this is what the Messiah had to go through. That this is what the Son of God had to go through for the payment of, of our sin, right? And so he delivered them over to be crucified because they cried, we have no king but Caesar. And so they took Jesus away, verse 17, and he went out bearing his own 
cross, right? You've got the picture in your mind that he carried his own cross from the place of judgment or from the place of the flogging to the place of, of the hill where they actually nailed him to the cross and, and put it up, right? So he's actually carrying his own cross beam at this point. And, and so it says this, that he went out bearing his own cross into the place they call the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they, they crucified him. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But verse 22, Pilate answers and says, what I have written, I have written. Pretty incredible. Verse 23 simply says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part, on each, uh, one part for each of the soldiers and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless. It was woven into one piece from the top to the bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots to see whose it shall be. So they're, they're arguing over his clothes and they got this one nice piece of clothing and they're going, hey, let's not ruin the clothes. Let's not fight over the clothes. Let's just, let's just play a little cards for it. Let's just gamble for it. So they could take his clothes, right? And John, knowing the prophecies, says this. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother uh, and his mother's sisters, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So his mother's standing nearby, right? Which is very interesting that John points this out because Jesus actually says some words here. Listen to what he says, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, which is John, the writer of this gospel, the writer of this gospel standing right next to the mother of Jesus, watching all this go down. And Jesus says to his own mom, woman, behold your son. And then he says to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took his mother into his home. You see what's going on here? Jesus makes this little statement to us. You better treat your moms well. Even to the very end, Jesus loved his family. Even to the very end, Jesus loved his mother. He looks at John, the disciple, and says, this is now your mother. Take care of her. Friends, we've got to honor our parents all the way through. Amen? Sometimes it's not easy. But Jesus gave us an incredible example, even in the middle of dying. He wanted his mom taken care of. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and they held it up to his mouth. Verse 30, when, when he had received the sour wine, it says this, that he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Friends, what, what an interesting, uh, what's so interesting to me is verse 23. Um, it gives this little tiny phrase, but not much more. It says this, it says, when the soldiers crucified him, and it talks about them dividing up the clothes. But what's interesting to me is it doesn't really describe what the crucifixion was. 
And, and I think the reason why John, who wrote this account, didn't have to go into great detail for why there was uh, about this crucifixion, what it looked like and what it felt like and what, what Jesus experienced was because, friends, listen, all the people who were the, the, the receivers of this original letter, who read this account, they had already seen a crucifixion a hundred times over because they all know, knew how Rome ruled. They were all living under Roman rule and they knew how Rome ruled the day. Rome had perfected the art of crucifixion. It was a, it was a way of, of punishing rebels. It was a way of punishing uh, the, the, the most hated among the, uh, the Roman Empire. It was a way of uh, punishing the most traitorous and treasonous. And so all the people had already seen this over and over. And I want you to think about this. Jesus was sentenced to die in the worst of Roman fashion. Jesus, the innocent one, Jesus, the lamb of God, who you and I, most of us in this room would adore. And we look at his life and it was perfect in every measure. And we say, why did he have to die like like the worst of traitors, like the worst of sinners? So it doesn't give us much of an account. It just tells us that he died in this way. And, and, and since it's my guess that most of us have never seen a crucifixion personally, yeah, we've seen it on TV and we can imagine it, but we've never really seen it. And so what I want to do is something even crazier than just reading an entire chapter to start something off. Um, what I want to do is I want to ask you to imagine with me something. I, I want to take you um, into the place where we can maybe feel this crucifixion that led to Jesus crying out those famous last words, it is finished. And so here's what I want you to do. Uh, I don't want you to have your phones on. I don't want you to have your Bibles on or opened up. I, I want you to dial in. And, and, and maybe you can put your head down. Maybe you just have to put your hands over your head. I don't care what it's going to take, but I want you to be able to imagine this kind of scenario with me. So in your mind, imagine for a moment that the executioner has laid the cross beam behind Jesus. And Jesus is standing in front of this beam that's been laid behind him. And, and at this moment, the executioner grabs Jesus by the back of the hair and he yanks him to the ground, pulls the Son of God violently to the ground. And in this moment, so I want us to uh, imagine just for a moment the, the lacerations from the whippings, the lacerations from the beatings, meeting the roughness of that cross. And imagine just for a moment the beam being fitted under the back part of his neck and his arms being stretched out over it. Just imagine this for a moment as you see the executioner, one on his right and one on his left, taking their foot and planting it firmly on the inside of his elbow in order to hold his arm in place in order to be able to nail him to the cross. Imagine that this crown of thorns had been fixed on his head and, and that it's been fallen to the ground a couple times and they pick it up again and they just shove it onto his scalp, tearing his flesh back. Now I want you to think about this for a moment, just for a moment, that, that the executioners, one on each side, they, they take from their satchel this, this pouch that would have been with them, they take out a, a, a hammer, a mallet, and they take out a famed Roman rough-cut squared iron spike. And they, and they place that spike into the hollow of his hand. And imagine while this is all going on, the mockery and the taunts and the people's jeers and, and how people are, are spat, spitting upon him and cussing him and cursing his name. And they take this Roman spike and they place it into the hollow of his hand or maybe the wrist, we're not exactly sure. 
But at some point they place it there and then they raise that mallet up high enough to bring it down with enough force and power to drive that spike clear through the hand of the Son of God. Now, I want you to try to picture this in a moment. I want you to picture, I want you to hear the gasp of Jesus as that nail was driven through. Just, just in your mind, uh, hear the cries of Jesus. Hear the cries of his mother as she watches. Hear, hear the cries of some of his closest followers as, as they watch and could do nothing to help. Hear the gasp, hear the sobs of some in the crowd. Now imagine these soldiers moving to the feet and they grab his right foot and they place it over the left as was custom for the Roman crucifixion. And and it takes two men to hold his feet in place because history tells us and science tells us that the body jerks so violently with such pain that it takes two men to hold his foot in place and, and, and they have to get this just right. They have to make sure that they get this right, just right because if they got it wrong, the victim would die too quickly and that was never the goal of Rome. The goal of Rome was, the, was for the victim to die a long and excruciating death. And so they had to make sure that, that Jesus' body was placed just right. And they had to make sure his body wasn't completely stretched out because they learned over time that if the body was kind of constricted when nailed, when they were up on the cross, they could actually pick up themselves and they could free up their lungs to breathe because you ultimately die of suffocation from a cross. And so they had to make sure they got it just Right, excruciating pain. I want you to think about this. Um, every time that the, uh, every upward breath that Jesus breathed and every downward uh, uh, release from the fatigue would result in excruciating pain as the cross cut deeper and deeper into his bone and tendons and raw muscles. Fever inevitably would set in, inflaming the wounds and, and creating an insatiable thirst. Waves of halluci- uh, hallucination drifted and uh, the victim in and out of consciousness. And over time, eventually the flies and the insects would find their way into his open wombs. Uh, and somewhere in the process of all this, imagine with me for a second, that Jesus manages to say the unthinkable. He doesn't say much. He doesn't have strength to say much, but he manages to say the unthinkable. You hear this word, you're standing near the cross and you hear him utter, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In this moment, he brings grace. He brings grace to the executioners. He, he gives grace and brings grace to the crowd that demanded his, his death. He brings grace to Herod. He, he brings grace to the closest followers who turned away from him. And in this moment, he brings grace to you and to me. And then his death is racing closer in, literally moments before he breathes his last breath. He's been stripped of all his dignity. Life has literally been beaten out of him. You can hardly imagine where he would get the strength, but eyewitnesses record, and you hear it in your own mind, you sense it in your own mind. I want you to see this and imagine this in your mind. You're standing at the foot of the cross and you hear this loud voice cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? In this moment, the scripture records that Jesus takes on the weight of the sin of the entire world. That the darkness of the entire world rests on him. All of the brokenness, all of the shame that you and I have in our life, it now rests solely and squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. All of it. 
And he feels abandoned. And you can hardly imagine um, where these words would even come from because you felt he had such a close relationship with his father. But in this moment, he feels his father has abandoned him. He says, where are you, God? Where are you, Father? Because listen, friends, fathers ought to rescue their sons. Fathers ought to protect their sons. Fathers fight for their sons. But God, in this moment, the scripture records that he has turned away from his one and only son. He he sees the sin and he sees the shame and he knows it's my sin. He knows it's my shame and he knows it's your sin and he knows it's your shame. But now he sees it all fixed to his son, Jesus. And the scripture says that a holy God turns away from his son who has been draped with sin. And friends, at this point, the scripture says that Jesus utters these words, I am thirsty. Very human, isn't it? And I say, no kidding, he's thirsty. No kidding. After what he's gone through, he's thirsty. And then it says they raise this vinegar, this this sour wine to his lips. One account says that he turns away from it. it, It's repudiated. It's stench to him. And then he cries out a single Greek word. To us, to you, and to me, when we read it in English, it's three words. But when Jesus utters it, he utters it in Greek. And it's a single word. But it's a word that expresses everything that needed to be expressed. It says everything that needed to be said. It's one word to end all other words that he has ever spoken. It's one word that frees us. It is one word that that literally gives us life. It is one word that brings us freedom and forgiveness and redemption. He says, tetelestai, tetelestai, which says, which is, it is finished. It's not, a, it's not an expression or a, a gurgle of, of defeat. It's not an expression that death has finally won. It's not an expression that says, oh, I can't take this anymore. I can't go on anymore. It's not a I give up an expression type of it is finished. It is a cry of victory. It is a cry towards life. Listen, friends, it is a cry, not a defeat, but a cry of victory where he has won. Where he has won, because in this moment he knows what has been accomplished. It is finished. Friends, listen, these are perhaps the most famous of the famous last words that Jesus ever spoke. And perhaps these are the most important of the famous words that he ever spoke. Hear me on this. He was saying, the work is done. One word in Greek, three words to us. But he's saying, it's over. It's done. Tetelestai, which is a powerful word. It's a beautiful word. It's a common word, actually, back in this day. It's a, it's a, let me just kind of give you life to this word a little bit. It's like a word that a servant would say to his master. He would say, Tetelestai. And what was he saying to the master? He was saying that I've completed the job you've given to me. I've completed the assignment you've given to me. I've done the work, master. And the master would look at the servant who said, Tetelestai. And the master would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's a word that is so breathtaking. It's so big. It's so wide. It means so much to us. Uh, this is an, but it's an everyday word. Listen, it's a business word that literally says it's finished. It's a business word. One of the coolest things that I've come across in my study was, was a um, 
was a find out of the ancient artifacts that came right from the very day of Jesus, right from the uh, very region surrounding Jerusalem. It was a find of like, a, I don't even know what you call it, like a jar or some sort of cistern. And in this was stuffed with all these, for lack of a better term, papers. And they were business deals. They were transactions between merchants and buyers and merchants and, and uh, customers and banks and, and the peoples of their mortgages. And it was all these um, receipts, for a better word, for lack of a better word, and you know how like, we would have like paid in full stamped on them? In this find out of ancient Israel, they had the word tetaleste written over them, which means paid in full. You, you, your account is zero. You're balanced out. And so Jesus on the cross, he says, it is finished. Tetaleste. He says, I paid for you what you could never pay. He says, he says, your account is zero. Yeah, you feel like the sin is all racked up in you, that there's guilt and there's separation from God. He says, no, no, I have done what you can't do. I have bridged the gap between you and God. I have paid in full everything. It's finished. You don't have to try anymore. You don't have to worry anymore. He says, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Listen, this word is so beautiful. This word was, um, was the exact word that ancient artists Ancient poets, ancient songwriters, ancient sculptors, ancient architects and builders would, would look at their art and they would step back and they'd go, Tetaleste. And it would be a cry of perfection. It'd be a cry of saying, The work is done. It's finished. It would be a way of saying to everybody else around, You better not mess with the work. Don't try to recover my song because it ain't going to get recovered. It's perfect the way that it is. Tetaleste. It's the finished work of God. And so Jesus, friends, I want you to hear these last words. He was saying something to you and to me. He was not saying, I can't bear the pain or the fight any longer. He was saying, the work of God is complete in your life if you let it. It's full in your life if you let it. So here's what I want to do. I want to do something a little bit crazy again. I want to take us back 750 years prior to this. I want us to, to read the words of, uh, I want you to hear something because I want us to read the words of a man named Isaiah. Now, people in Isaiah's time, they called him the prophet. They called him a prophet. They recognized that he was not just a holy man, but that he was a prophet from God who spoke of, of God and who, who God seemed to anoint in a very special way. And so people looking at this man's life called him a prophet. Now what's interesting is Isaiah writes, if you would ever go back, he's got a big book in the Old Testament and he writes often of this coming Messiah, of this coming Savior. And what's so striking about it is that he, if you were to read his story, you would see that he looks at his people and he sees them caught in this cycle of sin. Now, you and I would never get caught in a cycle of sin. No way. But he saw his people caught in a cycle of sin. And he would see that their hearts would wander far from God and they would rebel away from God. And then they would come and do this thing called the sacrifice. You ever hear of it? Anybody? The sacrifice? They would come to the the church or the temple and they would drag a goat or a sheep of some kind in and it's something of great value to them and, and they would perform this sacrifice and, and in order to somehow find forgiveness, in order to somehow be freed of their sin, in order to relieve the guilt of their sin, they would have to give up this thing of great value. So they would come and they would come to the altar and they would, they would literally slice the throat of this, 
of this animal. And they would spill the blood because, because they knew that their sin was heinous and that it had separated them from God. And, and they realized that, that life was in the blood. And they, they were saying, God, I can't give you my own life, but I give you a life as payment for my sin. Now, little side note. Don't go dragging a sheep or a goat in this church, pulling it up to the stage here and go slitting any throats. All right, y'all got that? Ain't gonna work around here because there's a different work that's been done. Y'all got this? You know what I'm talking about, the sacrificial system, right? Because the people would come over and over and over and they would say, I can't ever seem to be right with God. And they'd have to keep paying for the same sin over and over and over. And so Isaiah sees this cycle And he says, you're not getting it. He says, you don't quite understand. God doesn't desire your constant sacrifice. God doesn't desire your your repetition. He doesn't desire your many words. He wants your fullness of heart. He wants to truly forgive you and to free you from this cycle. And so Isaiah says in chapter uh, 53 of his book, he, uh, he says, let me tell you about the coming Messiah. He says, let me tell you about the coming Savior. And so what I want to do is another crazy thing. I just want to read most of the chapter to you. And tell me if you don't see Jesus all through this chapter. He writes this 750 years before the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, he was despised and rejected. Speaking of this Messiah to come. He was a man of sorrows, acquitted with the deepest grief. We we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. No, no. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have, let, we have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of who? Of us all. Of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, you think? Yet he never said a word. He didn't argue all the way through. He didn't fight all the way through. Me, when I'm in trouble, I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. Not Jesus. He said he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not even open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. Prophecy that Jesus would die young, that the Messiah would die young. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He says, it wasn't because of his sin, it was your sin. The rebellion of my people is why he was struck down. He had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a common criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Anybody remember the New Testament account of his life? 700 years earlier. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. This was God's idea. Blows my mind. Blows my mind. Yet when his life is made an offering for our sin, he will have many descendants. Woo! That's us. That's us. We 
will enjoy a long life. Eternity's a long time, baby. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. You know, the scriptures talks about how, how God looks over the redemption of creation and he's satisfied in that. And he's satisfied when men and women turn their hearts for the forgiveness of sin to Jesus. He looks at that and goes, that's good. He goes, that's good. He's satisfied with that. And because of his experience, my righteous servants will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he bear, will bear all their sins. I will give him the honor of being a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. <laughs> he was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for those rebels. Jesus said, Tetelese, it is finished. This sacrifice, this system of sacrifice is finished. It's done because the perfect sacrifice is here once and for all, once and for everybody. The sacrifice of sin has been made. Jesus said, that it is finished and I am the Messiah. Everything that you were looking for is found in me. Everything that you're hoping for is found in me. The God-man relationship can be complete in me. It is finished in me. It is finished because of me. It is finished in and through and because of me. Do you hear this, friends? This is what he's saying to us. If, you, if you're looking for love, he's saying, this is love. This is love. It's finished in me. If, you, if, you, if you're wanting to, be, uh, to find hope and forgiveness, he says, you can find hope and forgiveness in me. He says, it is finished in me. It is complete in me. Your hope and, and your fulfillment is complete in me. He says, I have come so that the blind would see and the lost would be found. He says, and it's because of me that you can be that you can see, that you can see eternal things now, that, that you can have a foundness in your soul that you never had before. So here's my question, and maybe this is just where we need to kind of land tonight. Jesus says, it is finished. And because of me, it can be finished in your life. So here's the question. Um, what unfinished business do you have in your life? Well, what's the cycle that you keep repeating over and over and you just wish that you could get by? Friends, I want you to hear this. Um, because in the book of Romans, Paul says that Paul's this great father in the Christian faith and he, he writes about this idea of this relationship with Christ that what happens in us and through us because of Christ. He says this in, in Romans 8.31. He says this idea that... Um, Matter of fact, if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn up the lights a little bit, and I want you to find Romans 8.31. If you've got a smartphone, one of them there, smart devices, find this, because this is so important. We, we have to understand what this means to us. Romans 8.31. I want us to see this because some of us have unfinished business in this world, and we're wondering if it'll ever get done in our life. We're, we're, we're wondering if, if, if this marriage will ever really truly work. We're wondering if we'll ever, ever get married in the first place. We're, ever, we're wondering if our kids are ever going to straighten up and fly right. We're wondering if, if this emptiness in our soul will ever be completed. Some of us are wondering if you're ever going to be happy again or if you're just going to live with depression all of your life. It's unfinished business in you. Some in this room you're struggling with an addiction you struggle with forever. And you're wondering if it will ever be free. And so Paul says this to us in Romans 8, 31. We're going to pick it up with these very cool two words. 
He, he, we're going to pick it up where it says, if God. Those are big words. If God, it changes everything because Paul says, in light of all these unfinished things in your life, if God, listen, somebody needs to say that with me. One, two, three. If God, that's what I'm talking about right there. If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he, listen, this is why. This is why. If God is for us, who can be against us? And he says, why? He's going to explain why God is for you. He's going to explain God's passion for you. This is what he says. He says, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave up his son for us, won't he also give us everything else? If he is willing to crucify his own son to redeem you, why would he leave you with unfinished business? He says, it is finished. He says, who dares accuse us um, whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us the right standing with him. Who then can condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand. Listen, what's he doing? He's pleading for us. He's making a case for us. He's fighting for us. He's challenging all the unfinished business in our life. And he's saying, come on. I'm going to get preaching up in here pretty quick. This is firing me up. He's saying, listen, no matter your struggle, no matter what's going on, no matter the disappointment, He says, that's not where the road ends. He says, it is finished because of me. It's like Jesus is saying this. It's saying that that it can be finished because I have finished it. It is finished means that sin doesn't have the last word. It is finished means that sin doesn't have to separate you from God. It is finished means that you can receive power and strength and glory and hope and righteousness and the mystery and the faithfulness of God all at one time. That's what it means, friends. That's what it means. And and so I get this, this whole series. um, You know, we we try to get real practical around here. We want to go, okay, what's the next step I can take? This whole series has kind of been lifting us up in our spirits to realize so much of the battle we fight is in the spiritual world. We need to think like God wants us to think. And I don't know what your next step is, I just know that it's finished. It's already done. I don't know what your next fight is. It's already finished. It's already done. Amen? Amen. And so here's a, this is a crazy day around here. I'm breaking every rule there is possible. We're going to take communion. And we're going to use grapes. We're going to use grapes. I'll tell you why. I want you to think about this for a second. Grape is unfinished wine. It's unfinished juice. Listen to me. You have something you struggle with. Something you've been crying out to God with forever. It's unfinished in your life. You, you need to be finished with it. And today as I invite you to communion to remember the price that God has paid for you. I want you to remember that this is not where it ends. Unfinished business is not God's nature. We're going to eat 
of the bread and drink of the cup, remembering that Christ has said, it is finished. My work is complete in you. You don't have to run in circles anymore. You can win. If God is for you, who can be against you? So, Father, we come to the communion table today, remembering your body, which has been broken for us, eating it, eating it, so that we remember that we do not have to be broken, that we are part of your family. We do not have to be alone, that we are part of your community. And we eat the grape, recognizing your blood and the finished work inside of us. God, as we come, uh, we, we literally are committing the unfinished works in our life to you. We're committing our soul to you, God. We're repenting of our sin. We're saying, God, I don't want to go back there anymore. And we're turning our hearts towards you. So do a work, God, deep inside of us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.